0: welcome to telltales an investing podcast hosted by hunt lawrence and mike nicoletti as a reminder nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice you should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you
1: Supposed to not repeat ourselves, you know, we said, "Nope, like last we can't have a hard, fast rule that we're not gonna circle back. And <clears throat> I'm sitting here with an old friend of mine, Garrett Kirk. Garrett and I started the bullpen as Dylan Reed. Well, we don't want to tell you how many years ago, because that's confidential. But Garrett's a full time investor. I got out of investment banking and went straight and became an investor, so I consider myself a full time investor as well. See, here's what I think. I think think Mike and I have to modify (laughs) this idea that we do one company a week and we never look back, we never repeat. I think what we need to do is at the beginning of each call, we'll we'll review the ones we've done. Now, I'm going to do this from memory, so it's going to be a test of memory. Since we came up with this program, We did Shopify the first week of Snowflake last week. I think that, just to recapitulate, both Mike and I are a bit concerned about gross margin weakness in Shopify. But it may not be that much of a concern because, frankly, when we spent that time looking at Amazon, Amazon has gross margin problems in its whole e-commerce business, so it shouldn't be surprised that Shopify has issues. As far as Snowflake goes, remember what we were looking at Microsoft and Salesforce and focusing on business-to-business software, Snowflake is all business-to-business software, and it is is now generating positive cash flow. The only thing I guess I'd say about Snowflake is you, it should be the kind of company that you buy and put away for 10 years or more. And so the cheaper you get it, the better. Um, with that, let me just do a commentary on oil and gas. Oil was headed down. It is being held up by the middle of the barrel, by middle distillates. That would be heating all these jet fuel. And the reason that's holding oil up is that is what Europe needs and one of the things Europe needs to get through the winter. So it's an odd situation where if you have a refinery, you'll make as much of those middle distillates as you can, but there's a limit to what you can do. So you're also making more gasoline that you make based on gasoline demand, which is weakened. Gasoline demand in July is off 7%. And it's, gasoline demand goes up and down with road miles, and it's off 7%. And I think it's going to stay off 7%. I think people finally started to react to high gasoline prices and start to carpool or run fewer errands or what have you. But with that very strong demand for the middle of the barrel of Europe, which will go on at least through the middle of the winter, I think. Oil's going to stay high, and gasoline's going to stay oversupplied. So the Biden administration is going out and saying they've done this great job of getting gasoline down, and in fact, gasoline is coming down. But you know, I don't, I, I don't know whether any of them understand exactly what's going on or why it's coming down. But they're going to take credit for it in the midterms. Natural gas has gotten very high. It traded for a while this week over $10. I think that's the first time in, I don't know, 20 years or something that natural gas has traded that high. It's clearly a function of weather. It's being hot and even a lot of air conditioning. But I think it's also a function of power pricing. And I don't want to spend too much time on it uh, this week or next week. But I think I can explain it in three or four minutes. When you're a utility or someone providing power, you get paid for two things. You get paid for capacity, in other words, your ability to deliver power if the regulators tell you to, and you get paid for a commodity. And the price for capacity expressed in terms of uh, megawatt hours is gone from like $2 to $200, which is extraordinary. No one predicted that what has happened is, as you have more wind and solar, you have less what the regulators just called dispatchable power. Dispatchable power means I know I can deliver it. With wind and solar, even with battery backup, you don't know that you can deliver it. So you're in the real-time market. So in order to make sure they have enough dispatchable power, they have capacity auctions. And the price for capacity auctions has skyrocketed. This has created an interesting situation because i've talked before that if the gas producer wants to sell gas there's no one in the futures you know if he wants to sell 24 gas there's no one there to buy it if you're entering into a capacity market auction and you have a combined cycle power plant you have to cover yourself by buying futures so it's, it's going to cause the futures price to go up and this is new this you know, I mean, I do this all day, every day. And plus we're in batteries and we have some solar development. I mean, I think I'm pretty good at it. I wasn't really aware of this phenomenon until early this week. And, you know, when you, when you finally see what's going on, it kind of makes sense. What does this mean? I wouldn't wade in. I mean, the good gas stocks are Intero, EQT, Katera, uh, I'm not sure I'd wade in and buy more of them. I mean, they've gone up an awful lot, but my goodness, if you own them, normally when you see something, you know, kind of out of the box or very unique, like $10 gas, you say, well, time to take profits. Because of this phenomenon with this capacity market getting so high, I'm not sure I'd do that now. So much oil and gas. The company today is lamb. The reason it, we're focusing in on LAMP, where Mike and I thought it was a good idea. Mike and his partner, Jason, own LAMP, and they liked it as compared, you know, we spent plenty of time talking about NVIDIA and ADM and I want semiconductor and whatnot, Intel. But LAMP is one of the companies that makes the equipment. Because we're talking about LAMP today, I was kind of cheating by focusing on the company we'll talk about next week, which is a company called ASML, which Mike has mentioned. It's a Dutch company, and it makes lithography machines that etch the the, the wafers. I have to confess, and I'll have to cover this. Mike and I try to talk for half an hour every morning at eight thirty my time, five thirty his time. I'm falling in love with ASML just in the last thirty minutes since i when I finally got time to read it. I really like ASML. So, what I'd like to do, we have, I've only chewed through 10 minutes. I'd like to devote the rest of the time today to, because Mike really knows this area. I'd like Mike to explain to us why he and Jason are high on LAM research. And I'd like to have him contrast LAM with ASML. And I'll duck in for a couple of questions, but I'm getting out of the area that I really know well. The reason I like ASML is they do a sensational job of describing their business, and they have very good cash flow characteristics. But I'm not saying that LAMP doesn't. So with that, over to you, Mike. You've got to carry the ball now for 20 minutes or so. I'll interject whenever a couple of times with questions, but it's over to you.
0: Okay, so... Yeah, this will be fun because we're going to try to condense a lot into a relatively short period of time here. So I'm going to start with high level who the different groups of companies are that ultimately contribute to making the chips that end up in our products. I'll start with the fabless design companies because we've already talked about them a lot and you should be somewhat familiar at this point. That's NVIDIA, Qualcomm, Apple. They have teams of designers and they have applications for which they want to design chips. They end up licensing IP from design cores. So think of arm in particular, but there's another company called imagination technologies and there's a handful of other, there's even a, an open source design core out there called risk inputs to those companies also include the software required to design chips a company in that group would be synopsis and cadence are two of the players there those fabless design companies they don't they're kind of asset light they don't own foundries they don't own equipment to make the chips they just assemble the ip and ultimately sell it they contract with a business called a foundry and a foundry is a company that owns a bunch of fabs so that's taiwan semiconductor SMIC, UMC, there's, there's a number of different foundries out there, but Taiwan Semiconductor is the notable one. In order for the foundries to produce a chip that's been designed by a fabless semiconductor company, they need to take in raw materials such as the semiconductor wafers. And that's an, a whole industry that involves growing a silicon crystal from an extremely pure form so that it can be used for this complicated process of semiconductor manufacturing. So the foundries take those raw materials and they use semiconductor equipment, the final group of companies, and that's where LAM Research and ASML fall, in order to produce the desired output that the fabulous design company, Apple, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, wants at the end. And the foundries are complicated because you're using a bunch of equipment from a bunch of different suppliers to design a chip that's designed by a third party and in order for it to be profitable this process has to be has to have relatively high yields meaning these super expensive silicon wafers once they're all printed up the vast majority of the chips that are printed on the wafer need to work because if they don't work then you just have to throw them away that's what's known as yield so like I said, ASML and LAM Research fall into that semiconductor capital equipment category. We like LAM Research for a lot of the same reasons we like ASML, except LAM Research is actually quite cheap. It doesn't have quite as good of a, although it does have quite a good moat, it doesn't have quite as good of a quote-unquote moat as ASML because ASML is literally the only player in the game. However, When you break down the semiconductor manufacturing process, there are dominant players among different processes. And the reason those players get chosen are a lot to do with the choice of the fabulous design company and the foundry. So the Foundry works with the Semiconductor Equipment Company that works with the Fabulous Design Companies to come up with a plan for producing product. And each of those players in, this, in the equipment, semicap equipment companies bring different things to the table to make things possible. And what you're seeing is Lamb Research in particular winning a lot more of this leading edge capacity. High level, we like Semiconductor Capital Equipment Companies because we think that they are actually quite resilient in a downturn. They tend to be relatively volatile stocks because of the semiconductor cycle. But with the geopolitical tensions that are happening today, even though these companies sell into a lot of fabs that exist in China, if we were to break off ties with China, it's sort of like whack-a-mole. If we stop selling to China, we're going to have to spring up fabs in other parts of the world. And if that happens, we're probably looking at Smaller fabs, which are by nature less productive, which means more pap- capital equipment per wafer. So, that along with many of the other industry trends that are lining up well, and we're going to need more semiconductors in the future, we think it's a good place to be. And you can buy these things at 10x free cash flow. Mike, could you just outline one of the characteristics of these businesses?
1: I mean, a LAM or an ASML may, in terms of significant customers, you know, someone with more than 2 or 3% of their sales may be only 7 or 8 customers, right?
0: Right, because there's only so many players.
1: Only so many fabs. And of course, the problem there is uh, there was an article in the paper this morning on Intel. Intel is building a new fab in Arizona for $30 billion. I mean, these things are incredibly expensive. And they made a deal with Brookfield, which is, you know, an infrastructure financing and very large. It's about half of the fab to Brookfield. And, and Mike and I were talking about that this morning. And Mike said, "Well, oh, that seems like a good deal. And I said, well, based on what I know, when I see the entity invest in the energy business, it's basically just off-balance sheet debt. Yes. They're not taking any risk of performance or anything. They're going to get paid back come hell in high water. So is it smart for Intel with the $30 billion commitment to build this fab in Arizona to borrow half of us? Maybe that's the right answer, but don't think that it, that financing doesn't come with hooks. But if you're spending $30 billion for a fab, is that like, $2 billion of equipment from ASML, or, or am I overstating the case? In a $30 billion FAB, how much of it would be the ASML etching machines, do you think?
0: So the of the $30 billion FAB, the vast majority is the equipment cost. You pointed out correctly that some of these machines, especially the lithography machines for the next generation of the high NA EUV and even just standard EUV, require multiple floors so multiple stories of the building in order to exist so these are huge machines it's like building you know many houses together except it has to be everything has to be exactly perfect in order to get atom level lithography completed so look at that 30 billion dollar number it's got to be over 90% of that is is equipment
1: but so twenty seven billion out of the thirty with the equipment.
0: Yeah, and I I can probably pull a more accurate number for that, but I, I think that's yeah, fair we'll, to
1: say. We'll be on ASML next week, so we can confirm that. Let me ask you another question. Let's say Apple now is, I think you could probably confirm, designing a fair amount of their own chip. So rather than using an Intel chip or an ADM chip or a or a Nvidia Q. GPU. They're doing it themselves. How influential would Apple be in designing a particular type of lithology machine that was going to go into Taiwan Semiconductor or Samsung or the Chinese company or Intel? Would the Apple designers, engineers have some significant impact in terms of how lithology machine is set up?
0: Less, less so. It's a combination, I guess, because as this technology moves forward, ASML, for example, will say, okay, in five years, we expect this machine to be done, and these are going to be its capabilities. So, as they're planning long term, they're assembling the, okay, these guys are going to do this part, these guys are going to do this part, and we're going to be able to decide this chip. They're also looking at saying, hey, we have to make X many millions of mobile phones, X many millions of uh MacBook Air chips and iPad chips and all of that stuff. So they're able to really schedule out their product roadmap based on these nodes and when the new nodes come out. If, for example, Apple all of a sudden decided to stop, and they wouldn't. I mean, this is part of just the natural progression of technology. But if if Apple decided they were going to significantly slow down their rollout in hardware improvements, they could do that. And it would probably slow the whole industry down a little bit. So I guess you could view that as a risk, but in order for them to stay competitive and keep pushing their software and their their operating system and their ecosystem forward, it makes sense to continue pushing the node and process technology along.
1: Yeah, another question for you, and this is probably wishful thinking, but with LAM and ASML, they sell a machine for $150 million. Let's round it up to $200 million. How much razor blade business is there? In other words, how much continuing revenue from that installation will you have? Software upgrades or equipment upgrades or whatnot. I mean, could it be? that I mean, I'm looking at the LAM financial statements and they say, this percentage original and then this percentage kind of service or follow-on is is there a razor blade aspect to this business?
0: A little bit. It's more of a services aspect. The margin isn't, isn't super, super high. So there is a little bit of that, but it's, it's not a pure razor blade model where 90% of your value is really the razor blade. No, no. I was wondering if
1: maybe 30% of your revenue might come from that, but you're thinking it be service business that, I mean, these these businesses show huge gross margins. I mean, fifty, sixty percent. But then, of course, you got to take out sales and R and D and whatnot. So it probably comes down to what do you think? Might about a thirty or thirty five percent cash margin in these businesses after R and D and sales. CapEx would be you know I don't know maybe eight or nine ten percent of revenue. So, I mean, these businesses generate a lot of cash and of course, they're very flushed now. So they're easily paying dividends and buying in stock and so on and so forth.
0: Correct. And the market is perceiving this as these companies are going to go through a major correction in a cycle and they're not going to make a bunch of money for a while. And that's why they're so cheap right now. And we believe that they will hold up better than the general consensus believes. I looked at Lamb, and three quarters
1: of their sales go to China, Taiwan, and Korea. Your whack a mole argument sounds right that if one of the areas were, were sanctioned, or say, if China tied to. And next, I with force. And we're faced with a sanctioned situation such as we have with Russia. The factory. we would just have to go someplace else. I don't, I think we saw, but the supply chain problems coming back from COVID, if you don't have the chips and you're producing automobiles, you can't produce automobiles. You can't deliver them. So there'd have to be a huge push to try to somehow figure out where you could make the chips.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think Malaysia is an obvious next move for semiconductor capacity. You're going to see some of it come back to the U.S. and Europe as well because of incentives. And why has more of this not happened in the U.S.? It mainly boils down to labor cost. And then we've also lost a lot of the fab business talent to Taiwan. So, in one sense, this industry is very similar for globalization because they're super high value volume production. So, the, the value tends to shift to those areas in which that part of the value chain is created. So, if you look at the United States, for example, we have most of the IP and the semiconductor manufacturing value chain. That's the fabulous designers and the semiconductor equipment makers. But even our semiconductor equipment makers, Lam Research included, they they don't make a lot in the U.S. They design their equipment in the U.S., but they make a lot of their equipment in Malaysia and other countries.
1: And in terms of labor availability, I mean, one of the problems in our economy now. Theoretically, we have a recession. We had a decline in real GMP in the first quarter. We had a decline in real GMP in the second quarter. But our unemployment rate is three and a half percent, and every business that you talk to has five jobs for every applicant they can find. There's just real shortage of labor. But when you talk about impact of shortage of labor, putting your facility in Malaysia rather than Arizona, it's the kind of labor that is. Missing, or get the willingness to work in that kind of an environment. I guess where you're, you know, you're in your white suit and you spend whatever your whatever the shift is, yelling you know, in absolutely clean conditions. Maybe that's just not attractive to the average U.S. employee.
0: Well, I think a lot of it is that in prior nodes, the Process was more manual than it is now, and over time, it's become more and more and more automated. And if you look, one of the U.S. fabs, I think it's Wolf Research, but I'd have to confirm that they are launching a completely automated fab in New York. You know, there's a possibility for this to come back to the U.S. The, the physical labor associated with fabs is dwindling dramatically, and it if you want to put a positive spin on the chips act and the extra 250 or $300 billion that we're putting into universities in order to set up some of this stuff, the positive is that it could spur more innovation and it could in the future of fabs could be pretty much completely automated, but require some very high level talent in order to keep them going. It, you know, there's some things about the chips act I don't like. I think. But in general, if the goal is to bring more talent or develop more talent within semiconductor manufacturing in the US, it should move us along that path.
1: Let me, uh, we're pretty close to using up our 30 minutes. When you talk about yield, if you're Paimon Semiconductor or Intel trying to catch up, or Samsung or the Chinese have a, their own. That business do you have to get to like ninety nine percent and only one percent rejects or in order to get your costs down and be competitive or can you do it with ninety five percent or or it doesn't not make any difference whether it's ninety five percent or ninety eight percent? I think I remember reading about Intel and getting in trouble where they would set up to make the chips and they'd have trouble getting beyond about 50%. And, you know, and then they'd have to shut everything down and try to make modifications to get their yields up. Is it the case that so far as you know, you really have to get into the nineties in order to provide the service that Qualcomm wants or Apple wants or what have you.
0: So yield isn't, easily described as a percentage, because what you end up with is microscopic imperfections on the wafer. And remember, this wafer is like 12 inches diameter. On that wafer, we print a whole bunch of chips. Now, the size of those chips can vary. They can be very small, or they can be very big. In fact, there's one artificial intelligence company that has a wafer-sized chip. So if there is one imperfection anywhere on that wafer, they have to throw the whole thing away. So let's assume that a wafer costs $1,000 or $10,000 and say there's only 10 chips on that wafer. If you have a 90% yield, that means you're getting nine of your 10 chips. So your average cost per wafer per chip is not $1,000. $1,100, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So take that to the whole design process. So that that goes back to when Apple's designing a chip. They actually strategically design those chips sometimes to account for yield. And there's an example of the M1 chip and how they have a bunch of different configurations and that it has more or less GPU cores. So when you go and configure a new MacBook Air, for example, or MacBook Pro, you can choose how many GPU cores you have. They sometimes will ship you GPU core in your computer, maybe if you can have up to eight cores and you only chose the four, maybe some of those four that are turned off in your version had bad yield. So there's ways to optimize your yield. But, and that goes back to how far back in the process of design are you willing to go and how valuable are your chips? So back to the seven nanometer Chinese chip, that was a Bitcoin mining chip. You could probably take a gander that that chip could sustain relatively poor yields and still be profitable for the end customer.
1: Good. Well, we're three or four minutes over. We should probably go on for another half an hour, but everyone stay well and be healthy. Our company for next week is ASML. What we'd also like to do is on both LAM and ASML. If by next week you can find some financial statements, I think it would be worthwhile to spend at least five or six minutes next week going through some of the some of the financial characteristics that distinguish these companies. Mike and I are gonna talk about that in the intervening days. that's one thing I'd like to on both Lab and ASML come next week. And with that, thanks for your time and attention and we'll talk next week. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.